morning is Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, there's a blue Bible in front of you you can use. And I'm not sure what page Genesis chapter 3 is on, but I'm guessing it's like page 1, 2, or 3 of that Bible. And we're going to read the first 11 verses from the chapter And we're going to particularly zero in on three questions. Three questions God asks of humanity, specifically here, Adam and Eve. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? not to eat. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. If you ever study the art of public speaking, some of you are like, I would hate to study the art of public speaking because I never plan on ever doing any public speaking. But if you study it, you'll come across a very common rule. It's known as the rule of three. The rule of three. Because researchers have have discovered that when you present ideas uh, in threes, they're more effective, more memorable. And that's why we joke every great sermon has three points. That's how you remember, because they're more effective, they're more memorable. And one expert said this about the rule of three. 
he gave two main reasons about the rule of three. I was like, how can you give two main reasons about the rule of three? But I passed by that. I didn't let that stop me from reading. First reason, most audiences are not easy to engage and have a low attention span. Doesn't that hurt? I mean, right now, you can just say it. Ouch. And I wanted to say, no, not Christ Community Church. I mean, other audiences. But I know you're fully engaged. I know you do not have a short attention span. I know there are no other competing voices right now in your head. You somehow have the self-discipline to knock all those things out. So thank you for that in advance. The second reason you want to obey the rule of three. Most speakers are not as interesting or as clear as they think they are. Oh. No. Not Pastor Paul. I mean, he is interesting. He is clear. And so today, I just want to acknowledge that you have some difficulty in being the audience and engaging. I have some difficulty to face in terms of being clear uh, to try to help you understand. So we're going to stick to the rule of three because God appreciates the rule of three. He's giving a public speech here in Genesis chapter three, and he follows the rule. Maybe he made the rule up himself. In Genesis three, we see that his speech consists of three questions. He wants to make sure they're clear. He wants to make sure they're memorable to Adam and Eve and to you and I. First question, where are you? Where are you? Those are questions that Adam and Eve face, but there's really questions for all of humanity. So one question I'm going to have for you this morning is, well, where are you? I mean, do you know? Second question, who told you? What voice is giving information to your narrative, to your script? Third, have you eaten of the tree? I want to rephrase that to, where have you taken your hunger? See, where are you? Who told you? And then somehow you took a hunger, a real hunger, a real desire, and you misplaced it. So where have you taken your hunger? Where have you taken your hunger? Now, before we get to these three crucial questions, it's important to to set the scene here. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 are so critical to understanding the rest of the Bible. And I want to set the scene, and it's very challenging to set the scene because setting the scene of this text is like flying over the Swiss Alps. There, There are huge things that we're going to have to fly over. And you're going to want to say, hey, let's stop and talk about that. And I'm going to say, hey, we're just flying over. Just flying over. I'm just saying this is a giant peak right here, but it affects or it informs what's happening in Genesis chapter 3. So you'll bear with me as we try to set the scene here. It's kind of difficult, but I've tried to make it clear as I can. First thing that we see here in Genesis chapter 3 or Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the backdrop, is that we see God making certain assignments to humanity. And I would say there are three assignments that he gives, which are perfect. Genesis 1.27, pretty well-known verse. I'll read it for you. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So the first assignment God is giving to humanity is he's giving an assignment of identity. We are made male and female. We are made in God's image. He's assigning that to everybody who's born. The, the Christian worldview affirms that we weren't born as like blobs of Play-Doh. And that we just come out and we sort of fashion ourselves in whatever image we want. No, we're actually assigned an image. It's an, it's an assigned image by God himself. We are in God's image. That's why every life is precious. And that, that image is born out in some way, either male or female. Huge, huge implications for today. But that's just one peak. We're flying by. We don't have time to stop, I'm sorry to say. Second assignment is God actually assigned an assignment. I've not only made you, I've made you for something. And he tells you basically what our assignment is in, in verse 28. And again in chapter 2, God created marriage between one man and one woman so they could fill the assignment of be fruitful and multiply. That's one of the assignments. I don't want you guys to stay alone. I want you to be married, and he's the father who gives the bride away. He's the one who fashions the bride for the groom. It's all in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And secondly, I want you to work and rule and care for creation. Part of your assignment is you're sort of a business partner with me. I've been a creative force, and now you're in my image, and I want you to be a creative force with the rest of the world as you work and rule over and care for creations. Again, huge implications, but we're just passing by. Number three, God assigned an authority structure. Let's look at that in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Then God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, verse 15. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's one tree out of all the things that God has given him, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. So God has assigned an authority structure. One reason God planted this tree in the garden, and there's more than one reason, but at least one reason is to remind Adam and Eve, you're not in charge. Yes, you're made in my image. You've been given, you're sort of at the top of the, of the creation pyramid, but you're not actually God. I just want to make sure by just putting this one reminder, here's something you're not supposed to do unless somehow I change orders. It's a way of structuring authority. The tree is a reminder that God is ultimately in charge. One scholar writes this about that. Why didn't God want them to eat from this tree? Surely it's good to know the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. Yes, but the knowledge of good and evil refers not simply to knowing what is right and wrong, but rather, and listen, but rather to deciding what is right and wrong. Do you hear that? It's not just knowing, but by taking the fruit of this tree, what you're saying is I'm assigning to me to decide what's right and wrong. And that's one thing God doesn't want human beings to do is to decide. He wants to say, hey, I'm giving you these parameters. You don't know what's right and wrong, Adam and Eve, so I'm going to help you know that. And so, 
and their sin, he says, the author says, the sin was that of law-making, not just law-breaking. They were saying to God, from now on, we want to be the lawmakers. It's part of the fall. We're taking authority away from God and assigning it to ourselves. And when this, this assigned authority, when this third part of assignment falls, it's like humanity breathed in like a poisonous gas. And it began to, to, to affect every system. It wasn't just limited to this one thing. It was, now I've got a poison in my bloodstream and it's affecting every vital organ. That's how sin works. And so now, instead of caring for creation, we exploit creation. Whether you dump chemicals in the Cape Fear River or whether you look at pornography, you're exploiting what's been created for good for your own purposes. Now, instead of a God-assigned identity and image, we, we want to assign our own identity, do we not? I was looking up just how many, you know, this trend of assigning to yourself your personal pronouns? Probably you've been in spaces like this. You call me Paul and I go by he, him, whatever. And there's a little way. You just say, here are the, way, here are the pronouns I'm using. And, and for a long time, it was he and she. You know how many personal pronouns are on the list now you can choose from? Over 30. What, ha- what happens? You, you just say, I, I, I don't want anyone else to assign identity to me. I want to assign to myself my own identity. That, the reason that happens is because we've jettisoned authority. And once you jettison authority, all kinds of, this poison works in our systems in all kinds of different ways. The second thing we see about Genesis 3, so that's part of this backdrop. The fall fall of man happens in Genesis 3. And humanity is in this terrible trouble. And there's more to say here than what I'm going to say. But the main thing I want you to see here in Genesis chapter 3 is God comes towards fallen humanity in grace. We see it in how many ways? Three ways. He comes proactively, verses three, chapter 3, verse 8. We read that. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He's coming towards Adam and Eve. Even in the most disastrous moment, God's coming looking for you. I want you to hear that. No matter your most disastrous moment, we have a God who's coming and he's looking. He's looking for you. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, which if you haven't read, don't just get it and make yourself look good by putting it on your coffee table. Read it, all right? And here's what you're going to read. Naturally, we think of Jesus touching us in a way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. I love this. Cautiously, he extends his arm and then giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. 
we picture Jesus approaching us with the same severe and sour disposition. Like if he really knew us, he would sort of cautiously reach out. And once he actually touched our soul, he'd be like, oh, gross, gross. I probably told you this story before, but Nancy was pregnant with Morgan and Zachary was maybe two years old. He's eating at the dining room table, making a giant mess. And something we gave him, you know, pureed peas or squash, something really gross. He just hit the eject button on, right? And it's, it's everywhere. It's all over him. And Nancy's like, she's pregnant, so she's not feeling all that great, right? So she's like, mm, no, I can't do anything with that. Honey, go grab him and hold him. I'm like, well, I mean, I want to, but let me get the fire hose first. And so I sort of like just barely touch him and put him in the sink and hose him off. And he's just screaming the whole time, hold him, hold him. I'm like, I'm not holding him right now. And maybe he's scarred for life for this. I don't know. He thinks that's how God operates. But see, you see, don't you see, don't you think sometimes that's how God operates with you? Oh, he doesn't want to hold me. I, he's got to hose me off first. Or he just kind of touches you like at the, the very littlest part. But that's not how God actually operates when you see him in the body. He's coming to embrace The leper that comes to see Jesus, what's the very first thing Jesus does? He touches him. Before he cleans him up, he puts his arms around him. God proactively comes towards us. He provides clothing to cover their shame. These skins of the animal, the leaves that they provided won't do. So we see one creature has to be sacrificed to cover another creature's shame. See, you hear that little shadow? One creature has to be sacrificed to cover the shame of another creature. And then Genesis 3.15, we've referenced this many times, this promise God promises He doesn't just provide, he's promising something of greater provision that the offspring of a woman, there will be enmity between her offspring and Satan and he shall bruise your head. He's going to crush Satan eventually, but in the crushing, Satan will bruise his heel. We could say a lot more here, but for sure we can say the rescue mission that God is on starting in chapter 3 is going to be a bloody mess. But the grace is that God becomes a bloody mess, not us. So you see the grace of God infused. So we see how God set the stage. We see how we've fallen. We've decided to say we want to be the lawmakers. And even in that fall, God comes towards us in grace. And when he comes towards us, he asked three questions. Now, this is all that was just like an appetizer, all right? Don't think of that as the sermon. Just think of that as the appetizer to these three questions. Where are you? Who told you? Where have you taken your hungers? First of all, where are you? Very first thing Adam and Eve do after their disobedience is they try to hide. They're hiding from each other. They're hiding from God. 
And then God comes asking the question, where, where are you? And we know this. It's not because God can't find them. He needs them to know they're lost. He needs to say, he needs to hear them say, I'm lost, or I don't know where I am. He needs them to recognize and admit where they are. Christian writer Gordon Dalby says this, to allow God to meet us where we are, we must first know where we are. This is not super profound, is it? I mean, to allow God to meet us where we are, we must know where we are. Now listen to what he says. And such an exercise in truth-telling can often be painful. I just don't actually want to say out loud where I am. The exercise in truth-telling to say out loud, this is really who I am, this is really where I am, this is where I've driven myself, whatever that is, it's very difficult. This is one of the geniuses of Alcoholics Anonymous or all these AA programs. You know it, right? You have to sit, sit in a circle, and what's the first thing you say? My name is Paul Phillips, and I'm an alcoholic, or whatever you're there for. You've got to say it out loud. you just got to say, hey, everybody probably already knows this, but Paul Phillips is just a giant sinner, and he needs to say it out loud in front of his congregation. My name is Paul Phillips, and I'm a giant sinner period. Not, and so are you to kind of deflect. Just, no, I'm just going to just say it about me. I know it's true about you, but I'm just owning my part. That's what he wants Adam and Eve to just say, okay, where are you? And say it, say where you are. Because if you don't know that, you can't, you can't get real help. So where are you? Another way to ask it is, are you hiding? Are you hiding? Here's some ways you might have some clues that you might be hiding. I, I prefer to blame shift. I mean, I know I'm in trouble, but you. I mean, this is the go-to response. You remember with Adam and Eve, we didn't read that part. But, well, it's true, I did, but let's deflect. Let's deflect. Sometimes we deflect to other people. It's possible when you're in real pain, you can deflect to God. God, hey, where are you, bud? Where were you when this happened? It happens for people in real pain. They, they don't really want to acknowledge where they are, so they shift. And you can shift to other people. You could actually blame shift to God. I rationalize, I minimize, I find excuses. That's ah, no big deal. Everyone does it. doesn't hurt anyone. Just when those thoughts are in your mind, just know you're not willing to say where you are. Or I cover. This is what Adam and Eve did. I, I, I wrap things around me. I don't want anybody to find out. I, I spend an enormous amount of personal and emotional energy trying to put up a front that... Everyone sees and they say, oh, he's okay or she's okay. But underneath, I've got all this turmoil because I know I'm not okay and it takes me a lot of energy to keep this facade going in front of everybody because I don't want anybody to know where I am. I'm not even sure I want to know where I am. I was reading recently about a woman in counseling and she felt a great deal of respect for the counselor. 
And because she had this real deep respect for the counselor, she didn't want to tell the counselor the truth about her. She wanted to make her look better in the eyes of the counselor. Now, when you're lying and hiding to your counselor, you're locked up. You are really locked up. Because you come saying, I need help, and yet in the midst of the needing help, you're hiding. Eventually, after several sessions, the woman exploded and exposed who she really was. She told the truth about what was going on inside of her. And this is what I found fascinating. When she was done, the counselor reached over to shake her hand and said this, well, hello, it's nice to finally meet you. Now we can get somewhere. Every session before that was just, we're just hovering. We're waiting to find out if you know who you are. And I wonder if any of you all are doing that. No one really knows who you are because you've got this thing up. It doesn't have to be everybody in the world, but some people have to know, hey, this is who I am. This is where I am. Where are you? Let me offer an invitation to come out of hiding. Oh, it's fr- there's freedom. I know it feels frightening, but there's freedom to come out of hiding. Some of that is you have to, for sure you have to say it to God, but you have to find somebody. It doesn't have to be everybody, but you have to have some little circle that you say, hi, my name is Paul Phillips. I'm a big sinner. Come out of hiding. Who told you? this, This is the answer to this question is so important. Genesis 3, we have sort of an abrupt introduction to another voice. The voice of a snake. The voice starts out questioning. You saw it. Did God actually say? Just, just trying to drop in a little suspicion about God. Maybe he's withholding something good. Maybe he got his voice wrong. Then it turns into the contradictory voice, verse 3, you won't die. And then verse 5, it turns into the conquering voice. You can be like God. The voice tells you, you, you should be the lawmaker. You should be able to say what's right and wrong. You should just be able to decide, and sadly, Adam and Eve believe that other voice. So God comes asking, who told you? Everyone here this morning is listening to a voice. The question is, what, what voice? Whose voice? Is it God's voice? Is it a parent's voice? Is it a pastor's voice, a friend's voice? Is it a voice of a book? Is it a voice of the culture? But everybody's following some voice. Every, everybody has that voice. You know it. It's narrating your life. Who told you? Who told you? The, the story of competing voices are, is all over the Bible. It's not just in Genesis chapter 3. Proverbs 9, you remember how Proverbs describes... These two voices, these two competing voices, is the, the voices of two women. Lady folly and lady wisdom. 
And they're both crying out. You can look at this up later, Proverbs 9. They're both crying out the same thing. All the simple, turn here, turn here. You don't really know where you're going, so turn here. And lady wisdom is calling out, and lady foolishness is calling out. We saw this last week in blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus cries out for mercy, and what does he hear back from the world? Shut up. Nobody's paying attention to you. And right at that moment, he has a choice. He's got two voices. I believe God is merciful, but I'm hearing, be quiet. And I've got to decide right now, which voice do I obey? Which voice drives my life here? How about Peter and Matthew 16? We know this. Jesus has just told his disciples, hey, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to suffer. I've got to die. And Peter comes in to rebuke Jesus. Imagine this. You're going to correct Jesus. It's never a good thing. Why does Peter correct Jesus? At this moment, Peter thinks he's the lawmaker. He knows better. Peter took the same fruit that Eve took. He thinks he's equal to God. He's listening to another voice. And you know he's listening to another voice because Jesus tells him he's listening to another voice. You don't have to guess. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. I've heard that voice before. I've heard that voice before, Peter. And now you're channeling that voice. I bet Peter didn't even know it. This is why when you're asking this question, you have to be very careful and slow. And what I would say, look circumspectly. You know that word? That's the SAT word. You got to look all around. Because I'm positive Peter didn't think he was channeling Satan's voice at that moment. But he was and he didn't know it. He didn't actually know the voice that was informing or influencing his decisions. So whose voice? Whose voice? I received a text this week from a friend looking for some spiritual help. Listen to what they asked me in this text. Paul, can you direct me to some Bible verses that counter the following narratives? Do you hear that? Hear what he's saying? I have a narrative in my head. I know it's a lie. I know it's a snake. But it's tempting. It's loud. And I've got to have a, another counter narrative. I've got to have a truth that can I hold on to while this voice sort of bombards me. Here's what he said. Can you direct me to some Bible verses that counter the following narrative? Performance equals value. I'm just wondering if any of you have these voices. Performance equals value. Worldly security is comfort. Number three, I don't matter. That's heavy. I have a voice that tells me I don't matter. Can you give me a counter-narrative? Can you give me another voice to be listening to? I texted him back, who told you? I mean, before we just get to Bible verses, let's get to the voice behind that narrative. Who, Who told you? Don't be quick to answer. 
My invitation here is to ask Jesus to reveal to you the right answer to this question. Don't, don't just assume you know it. And then an invitation to connect your current false beliefs to a voice. I do believe this, and the reason I believe this is because my dad told me this. And he has a big voice. Even though he's dead, I'm still living from that voice. I mean, it can happen in all kinds of different ways. You just got to acknowledge that. And an invitation to follow a new voice. I love this poem by Mary Oliver called The Journey. Here's what she says. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, they cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the clouds, and there was a new voice. Maybe today. You need to leave the old voices. And hear a new voice. And let Jesus narrate your life ahead. Final question. Have you eaten of the tree? Or as I said, where have you taken your hunger? See, when you disobey God, you still have desires. You still have God-given desires. You've got to take them somewhere. Where do you take those hungers? And you notice how, how subtle Satan was. He, he helped her notice these things about the tree. Or the fruit. The fruit was good for food, which is a good thing. The fruit was a delight to the eyes, delight and enjoyment and pleasure, all good things. The fruit made you wise, all good things. Do you see that? All these are God-given good things. You should desire all these things. But none of them are above obedience to God. See, that's the difference. These are all good things, but when I become obedient to them, then, then I've shifted. I've, I've shifted the authority. Now I have some other appetite that runs or rules my life. Margaret Jones, I'm coming to the end here. She writes a book called Holy Hunger. Listen to what she says. I grew up hungry for all sorts of things. Contact, intimacy, self-expression. All good things. And buried these things in a buried these longings in a craving for food. I took all these good desires and buried them somewhere else that couldn't possibly match my desires. So she recalls being in a place to get get help, and she said, "Every night I would sneak out and go to Taco Bell." You do that. You're sitting in a place to get help, but during the week you sneak out. You go to Taco Bell. Now, maybe it's not Taco Bell. Maybe it's your computer. Maybe it's your Amazon Prime account. Maybe it's social media. I mean, see, there's a lot of Taco Bells, are there not? 
You're here to get help, but really, I sneak out. I hope nobody knows. I hope nobody can see that I spend every night at Taco Bell going through the drive-thru. I mean, isn't that silly? But, but aren't the things that we sneak out for just as silly? She goes on to say in an in a interview, Thankfully, by the grace of God, I learned to stop acting on my addictive cravings and listen to my deeper desires. It's clear to me that I was created with infinite longing that only an infinite person could supply. What tree are you eating from? Have you taken a God-given longing and buried it underneath some unhealthy expression? Anyone in church seeking help still sneaking out? Hoping just one more trip, one more purchase, one more like, I'd offer this invitation to recognize your addictive cravings. That they're all empty efforts to satisfy a holy hunger. And begin to, to hear deeper desires and connect them to Jesus rather than connect them to something from the world. Where are you? Who told you? Where are you taking your hungers? Let's pray together. Lord, these are critically important questions for all of humanity. And I pray that every person here would wrestle deeply with the answers to those questions for those of us who might even be like Peter we're blind to the voice in our head we we think it's the right voice but actually it's an exact opposition that you would help us hear that would you'd help us to say where we are to say it out loud to notice how we try to take real hungers and bury them in places that can't satisfy to help us to be honest with ourselves and trust in the grace of God that comes towards us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.